Wall Street bonuses apparently not where the money is. This is Industry Focus. Hi, Fools, financial analyst Michael Douglas, and I'm here with uh, our senior banking specialist, John Maxfield. John, how are you doing? I'm doing great. And by the way, uh, not where the money is. I, don't you wish that you were in on some of that, even though they're a little bit lower this year? <laughs> yeah, I know. Not a, not a, you know, not a, not a bad deal for them overall. So yeah, let's let's get straight to right, uh, straight to uh, what I teased. Um, Wall Street uh, bonuses and trading desks down a little bit from last year, at least according to, at least for uh, Citigroup and Bank of America. John, what's the story here? The story is that is that you know going into the fourth quarter things were looking pretty good for the banking sector and for trading in particular, but evidently something went something went on in the markets. There's a lot of volatility that was on, typically volatility is good, but evidently it was unexpected at least by a handful of traders at Citigroup and Bank of America in particular, according to the Wall Street Journal. And as a result of that, it, it turns out that um, year-end bonuses were for the for the entire year of 2014 it looked like they're going to be down a little bit um, for Wall Street traders in particular at Citigroup and Bank of America in particular. But let's be clear, uh, the bonuses are still probably going to be pretty generous relative to what uh, the average person on Main Street uh, should expect to receive uh, over the next couple of weeks. Yeah, fair enough. Well, and also, not just are those going to be probably substantial bonuses, um, but those bonuses have, as you've pointed out uh, previously to me, grown a heck of a lot faster than other things like, oh, I don't know, let's say the consumer price index. Yeah, since uh, if you go back to, I think the data set goes back to 1985, and who knew that somebody collects data on Wall Street bonuses, but it turns out that the New York um, office, the controller's office, can collect this information. And so they take it back to, I think it's 1985, and since from 1985 until, I think, the end of 2013, Wall Street bonuses have climbed more than 1,000%, whereas inflation has climbed something like 86%. So you have a disparity between how fast Wall Street bonuses have grown between and the the consumer price index of something like 992 percent. I mean, it's a ridiculous amount. It just goes to show how much money we are pumping through Wall Street right now, and also how they are setting up the incentive structure for Wall Street and investment bankers and traders in particular. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, definitely, a, definitely a, a fair call there. Um, one other one other point, which uh, is sort of highlighted by that chart that you sent me, um, and this is a point that you made to me before we started filming. Um, Interestingly, it seems that these bonuses seem to kind of peak right before uh, right before market crashes. Yeah, isn't that interesting? <laughs> isn't that interesting? So if you look at so what we're talking about, there's a chart that I, I drew up, and it, it takes us back to 1985 again. I think that's the starting year, and it shows the acceleration of bonuses on Wall Street relative to the CPI. And basically, the CPI is flat, whereas um, the bonuses on Wall Street are, are 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 kind of an ascending mountain, right? And you have two different peaks over this time period. The first peak is in right around the year 2000, which was when we had the internet bubble, right? And then the second peak was during the housing bubble, or you know, we had CLOs, CDOs, all these fancy derivatives that are being traded on Wall Street, making people a lot of money. That eventually caused the financial crisis, or at least played uh, leading roles in creating um, kind of the the foundation that led to the financial crisis. And so you had a spike there. So what you know, when I look at this chart. I think it is impossible to um, not take away the fact that there is a good possibility that we are incentivizing people on Wall Street to do things that lead to market crashes or market failures. And you just can't help but wonder if that is 
what's good for the United States, right? And I'm, I'm saying that somewhat facetiously because I right. think that all reasonable people can agree that it's actually not good for Wall Street. And the second thing is just in, in the absolute value of um, Wall Street bonuses and how fast that they have grown. You have to remember that all Wall Street does, and when I'm referring to Wall Street, I'm referring to you know the investment banks and the traditional banks that have investment operations. These are not the vast majority of 6,000 plus banks in the country. Those, right. those people are just making loans and taking deposits for the most part. These are your high finance um, companies and vehicles. And they have grown so fast, despite the fact that they really do nothing other than to allocate the money that Americans have earned with their hard work. So every, all of us around here doing work, trying to make a living, and we're putting some stocking some money away every year to save our retirement. And then that money is used by traders on Wall Street to do all these ridiculously risky things. And you just can't help but wonder, is that, or do we have things turned around? Should we maybe be incentivizing the people that are working hard and making their money in more of an honest capacity, more than the people who are taking the hard-earned money and just kind of shuffling it around and making just boatloads of money for themselves? Well, and not just thinking of it from a moral perspective, which I think you very appropriately laid out, but also thinking of it from an investment perspective, right? I mean, when it comes down to it, some of the key things that we look for in uh, in bank stocks that are worth buying, of course, you know, we want to we want to see uh, cheaper valuation wherever possible. Um, but you know, we're also looking at things like the efficiency ratio and like you know this sort of culture um, that is that is pretty reasonable about the sort of risk that they take with credit. Um, and it seems that these incentives fly a little bit in the face of that. That is an extremely, extremely uh, important point. Yeah. So if you go back to 1990, well, let's go back even further, right? Let's go back to the Great Depression. So in the Great Depression, the legislature got together and they passed an act called the Glass-Steagall Act. And one of the things, one of many things that Glass-Steagall did was it stopped traditional banks from having uh, trading operations where you're trading, you're acting as a proprietary trader, either trading equity securities, debt securities, derivatives, whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. Well, fast forward to 19 and 1999, and there is a big deregulation movement that hit all the industries, but financial, the financial industry in particular. And one of the things that got that did away with was this prohibition of depository institutions, which, by the way, are backed by the taxpayer of the United States via the FDIC because it insures all the deposits under a certain amount. So it, it stopped those, those types of banks from doing it. So then in 1999, it allowed them through that deregulation measure to then start proprietary trading again. And one of the things, and this is one of my main hypotheses over the past few months, is that if you look back over the past, say, decade, and you see how these banks have been treating their customers, they've been rearranging deposit transactions, they've been uh, ostensibly fixing cre neutral credit card arbitration forums where people can come up, go in and dispute uh, charges on their credit cards. They've been doing all these different things to their customers. And you can't help but wonder, well, why would a bank treat their customers in this way? And I can't help but think that by letting these trading operations, and traders think of everybody not as a customer who you owe some type of duty, whether it's fiduciary or a lesser standard, right. but they look at everybody as a counterparty, and that is as an adversary. So not only are you not on the same side, but you are actually on opposing sides when you adopt that trading mindset. And I can't help but think that as we've seen these executives move up, these trading executives moves up, move up to the top of these banks. We see that Goldman Sachs, we're seeing it at Bank of America, we've seen it at Citigroup, we've seen it at all the major banks. And that and you can't help but wonder, are these people allowing that adversarial treatment of 
counterparties or customers, if you will, to influence how these traditional banks are treating just your mom and pop uh, depo depositors and, and borrowers on Main Street. Are, are these banks treating them poorly because of this trading culture? I think it's a really good question. Um, and I think it's difficult to prove, but I think the anecdotal evidence is very powerful. Yes, I think that's a very that's that's a very fair point, and definitely something anybody who's interested in the financials industry needs to be keeping a very close eye on. Um, so moving moving from banks actually to the bank, let's talk about the Fed briefly. Now, the Fed recently reported their uh, their profitability, and uh, the numbers look pretty good. Yeah, the Fed is doing all right for itself, <laughs> yeah. right? So in, in, in 2014. The Federal Reserve earned $101.5 billion. Okay, now, you know, on this show, you know, we used to be called Where the Money Is. We talk about numbers and money and all that stuff all the time. So sometimes it's easy to lose track of how large some of these numbers are. But $101.5 billion, that is a ton of money, right? And what we've seen is that, well, we, we've seen a couple of different things. But one of the reasons they have earned so much money is because their balance sheet just exploded in size during the financial crisis through QE1, QE2, and QE3, and through which the Federal Reserve was just purchasing massive amounts of Treasury certificates or Treasury securities and mortgage-backed securities that are backed by Fannie Mae uh, and or Freddie Mac. And so they're just collecting all of this interest on this money, and it's just a phenomenal amount. And they're remitting, I think they remitted something like $98 billion in quote-unquote change, right, um, to the federal government. So you can't help but think that the federal government is probably really appreciating that contribution right about now. Uh, yeah, I would imagine. Certainly, I could use a $98 billion check. John, how about you? Yeah, I could just, just a change. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> because the change, I think, is like $500 million. Oh, yeah. I mean, that would be, uh, that would be absolutely lovely. Um, looking at the Fed, any, um, any warning signs or concerns there for you? You know, really no warning signs or concerns. I, I think what I found most interesting is that, to the point that you brought up at the very beginning of this, this kind of second uh, issue, is that the Federal Reserve really is just a big bank. Yeah. I mean, we think of it kind of as a governmental institution, which of course it is, but underlying all of that is just a huge bank that holds a massive amount of assets. And it's like a couple of different points. So if you go through its income statement, and you say, well, how is it possible that it earns so much money? Well, basically, it has this huge asset portfolio that's collecting interest on. But unlike a traditional bank, it doesn't have to. So a traditional bank will go out and borrow money from depositors or through warehouse lines of credit or things like that, and then use that money to then buy assets. And then the interest rate that it pays on the funds uh, versus the interest rate that it earns on the assets, you take the difference between those two, and that's the money that a bank earns is net interest income. Right. Well, if you look at the Fed, what's so interesting is that, of course, the Federal Reserve doesn't have to borrow any money whatsoever, right? What does it do? Well, it just turns on the, you know, you know, figuratively speaking, it just turns on the printing press. So it just creates money and then buys assets with that. And that's the reason why the Federal Reserve is able to be so profitable because it doesn't have that expense that all these other banks have. In, turn, in fact, its return on assets is 2.2%. You know, take this from somebody who thinks about, reads about, writes about banks all the time. That is just simply unheard of um, in the banking industry. So, so the big question going forward is this. So you have this huge asset portfolio at the Federal Reserve. I think it's like $4.5 trillion in assets. And, and the question now is, what will the Federal Reserve do with that? Is that the new normal? Or is it going to go back to, say, the $800 uh, billion in assets that it held on its balance sheet before the financial crisis? And I can't help but think that 
because of the huge contribution the Federal Reserve is making to the federal government in a time where the federal government is not in a surplus by any stretch of the imagination. Right. right? I, you can't help but think that perhaps, you know, it's hard to say because the Fed is ostensibly independent. You know, you can't help but think that perhaps there's going to be some influence, of some political influence on the Fed to maintain the size of that balance sheet, not only to continue making money, but if it reduces this, if it starts selling those assets, if it becomes a net seller, well, that will presumably drive up your long-term interest rates, which will weigh on the economy. Right. No, definitely a, definitely a, a, a very fair question for us to ask and uh, one that we'll want to watch moving forward. Um, John, as always, a pleasure to talk with you. Uh, folks, check back to Fool.com for all of your financial and other investing needs, and stay tuned to the Industry Focus uh, podcast tomorrow. Thanks much. Fool on.